good to see you all this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Final chapter, the final verses of this chapter. This is my uh, 42nd and final message in this wonderful book. We began it uh, in January 2012, and uh, we're just finishing it this morning. And for those who are who are curious, um, after Mark, I've got, uh, I think, a couple topical messages I want to preach just to give us some vision as a church, some things on my heart, things I've been learning, things I want to mobilize all of us for. Um, and then after that, so very soon, we're going to be preaching through the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through 134. These are the Psalms that Israel would would sing kind of folk songs, if you will, that they would sing as they went up to Jerusalem to worship several times each year. They would sing them along the way. And, and my hope and my dream and goal and aim is to teach us a bit about worship and preparing for worship uh, as we do that. So if you're looking to kind of kind of think ahead, I know the Psalms of Ascent have been on my mind for a long time, but particularly think about preaching through them a couple weeks. I'm sorry, a couple months in advance. I've been really thinking about them. And also in the further distance, I'm thinking about the book of Philippians in the fall. That's uh, what we're, we're hoping to do. But if you want to just start spending some time there, you can read them. They're all but one of them. It's only Psalm 132 is more than 10 verses. All of them are shorter than 10 verses. And we'll just work through all those 15 psalms in 15 weeks um, over the summer. I'm, I'm thrilled with that. Um, but we come this morning to uh, a passage which is sort of famous it's famous because it has a name. Can you think of other passages in the Bible that have a name? Shout one out. Who's got one? The Olivet Discourse, right? Matthew 24 and 25 um, or Mark 13. And it's named the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave this discourse on the Mount of Olives. It's important because it deals with end times events about the return of Jesus and what things will be like before then. How about another passage that has a name? Huh? What? The what? The Beatitudes. Good. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. They're just where Jesus says, Blessed, blessed. Beatos, Beatitude, is the, uh, the Latin word for blessed, happy, or, or, or favorite of God is the one. Just 12, um, I think it's 8 statements, maybe 10 statements. 10 statements. Eight statements. I don't know how many. <laughs> Eight to ten statements about how good it is to walk in God's ways. Uh, how about good? How about another one? The Sermon on the Mount, right? The Beatitudes start the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5 to 7. And it's important really because it, it speaks and brings forth the heart of Jesus in the message He's going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Good. How about another one? The Lord's Prayer. Also part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, in which we know of what we are to pray. It's very important for that. You've already had one. You don't get another one. Anyone else have one? The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It's a common thing that Israel and the Jewish people constantly refer to and quote from. And it really speaks about what the heart of religion is. Not merely the externals, but the heart that that uh, these words shall be on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Shema is the word listen or hear. Shema Yisrael. Uh, listen, 
here. And uh, Jews repeat that every day, every time they are in the synagogue, almost as much as we repeat the Lord's Prayer. Good. Another passage comes to mind. Well, you got one, Ruthie? What's yours? The Ten Commandments. Good. Exodus chapter 20. And it's the, the first giving of the law. That's why it, it's so important. And it, it kind of encapsulates the whole law in just ten short, pithy statements that really help. That's really good. Any others you can think of? The what? Psalm 23, the Good Shepherd's Prayer. I'm not sure how you... Talk, the Psalm of the Good Shepherd, I'm not, I don't know the exact name of it. It's real famous. What would you call it? The Shepherd's Prayer. Okay. Very good. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Good. Other passages come to mind? The Magnificat. Who said that? Lance, you said that, right? Luke chapter 1, where Jesus, or Mary is saying, My soul exalts in the Lord. Again, that's another Latin term. Magnificent. It, it makes God magnified. It lifts Him up. And it's Mary's psalm of praise that she gives after hearing that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. Very good. Others? We go all night. All morning. <laughs> Until all night. I've got a few more. Uh, the high priestly prayer. John 17. Um, in which uh, Jesus prays to God the Father. We could probably come up with more, but our text this morning has a name. Anyone know what the name of our text this morning is? Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. What, what's the name? Um, no. It's, no, that's, that's a good one. That's probably more Matthew. That's a good guess. In particular, I'm talking about Mark 16, 9 through 20. It has a name for it. Okay, you, you, live, you ready for this? The longer ending of Mark. Okay? <laughs> really, that's, that's the name that has been given to this. Um, now, it doesn't get its name because of its importance in biblical revelation. All those other passages are like key and crucial passages in biblical revelation. They give us a heart of a God or the, they're often repeated. And my guess is you've never heard a sermon on Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. Has anyone? Been around church a long time? Have you, Darren? Great. Well, my guess is, you, this may... <laughs> Vicky's got one back there, because there's a, a very special verse for her that she, she knows about, that she likes. But my guess is, this may be the first and maybe the only time you hear a sermon on this passage. The longer ending of Mark gets its name because of uh, its problem. Because of its difficulty. And in fact, even this morning, the, the problem is so big and so large that I want to talk quite a bit about that, um, talk about textual criticism and uh, give you maybe some background about how the Bible is developed and then we'll spend some time in here because, um, um, quite frankly, many pastors, preachers don't preach these verses okay? because they believe that Mark ended in verse 8. Um, I, each week, uh, as I prepare to preach, I listen through, oh, maybe five messages or so from preachers who I like and, uh, and appreciate, and I just listen to messages. I think four out of the five didn't preach a passage, didn't preach on 9 through 20. Um, and you'll see why in a little bit. So I want to deal with my first point. It's going to be half my message. I'm just going to talk about the text. It's going to be maybe, maybe new for some of you, uh, but I think it's going to be helpful to just give you an insight on how the Bible is put together, and then we will go through the verses in a summary fashion. Here's the text. Let me just read it. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, 
from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and reported to those who had been with him. And while they were mourning and weeping, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, and as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This is the, um, uh, the Great Commission, for sure. And then he says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirm the word by the signs that followed. Now, most all of you in your Bibles have some sort of note um, right at verse 9. If, if you look there, maybe in the margin, um, maybe you've got a superscript or something like that, that's in part of the text, actually. As the translators translate it, sometimes they comment on the text. And so, for instance, the New American Standard and the English Standard Version have real short notes that are part of their, their text that explain that. The New American Standard simply says this, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. And the ESV says something similar, but kind of from a different perspective. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Now, I want to explain this to you a, a little bit. Um, the Bible we hold in our hands is a translation of Greek text that we have. Um, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. And the manuscripts that we have are many. Um, in fact, the number of manuscripts we have in the New Testament is far more numerous than any other Greek text that we have. So I think I've got a slide ready. Is that right? You can help us there, Chuck? Okay. This is... Um, Geisler and Nix wrote some kind of book. I don't even know what it was. I just I got an email this week that brought this to my attention. I'm like, oh, this would be great to show here. These are um, Greek texts. Now, I'm not a Greek historian. I don't know all these things, but uh, I know about Plato, right? And I know the, the Gallic Wars a little bit. But these are ancient Greek manuscripts. And uh, the time of gap between the original when they wrote and the copy that we have as you can see in all of those, is a thousand years, basically, on the average. You look at the number of copies of them, and um, some of them we have quite a bit, like whatever this, Demosthenes, whatever that is, some ancient Greek text, some of you probably know, is 200 copies of that, but they're 1,400 years later. Some of those copies we only have just a few. Um, but now look at the New Testament. The copies that we have, some fragments we have within 50 years of when they were written. Um, and most of the books of the New Testament, within 100 years, we've got most uh, a scrap from some of, of all the books. 
Most of the New Testament, 150 years after the time of Christ, we have copies where someone wrote, whatever, 200 A.D., wrote a copy of what he was looking at um, of the New Testament. And we have, have copies of that. By the time we're, whenever it says 225 years away, we have a complete New Testament. And the number of copies, let me look at that. 5,366 copies of the New Testament. I'm not sure where that number comes from. What's important is not the number, because they're discovering things all the time, or they're trying to piece it together. That number is somewhat probably in flux. But it just gives you a general idea of the reliability of the Greek Testaments, the Greek New Testament that we have. That we have far more um, copies of the Greek New Testament than any other ancient Greek literature. And the distance between the original writing and the copy is far less than anything that we have in ancient Greek literature. And, and, and there are lots of, of scholars who will doubt the authenticity of the manuscripts that we have. But say, if you doubt the authenticity of the New Testament, you can just throw all of ancient Greek literature out the window. Because if you doubt the New Testament, you have to really doubt every other piece of Scripture from ancient times because it's well attested what the, what the Bible is compared to everything else. And, and the reason why we have so many manuscripts is because people really care. I mean, people in ancient history didn't so much care about Tacitus' annuals, okay? Um, there were some, but people really cared about the New Testament so saw that it was written down and, and uh, passed on from generation to generation. Now, having said that, there is some distance between the, the writers that we have and the originals. And sometimes you have writers who copy the copies, who copy the copies, who copy the copies. And they didn't have photocopiers back then. They had scribes who very carefully wrote out uh, the New Testament. And um, not all the manuscripts agree. Words are skipped. Maybe it's spelled a little bit differently. You skip a letter. Something sounds the same. It's not quite written exactly the same in every instance. And there are some scribal errors that, that has come into all of these thousands of, of documents. Now, the good news is this. The manuscripts are remarkably reliable. And whenever they disagree, there's always just a little subtle difference between them. And never do the differences change a biblical doctrine. Maybe sometimes they'll change a little bit, meaning like, did they say his, or did they say yours, or sometimes they say you, and sometimes they say us, or sometimes it adds an extra of the Lord, where something would be clear, but sometimes an extra word is put in to, to clarify it, or sometimes it's dropped, or sometimes things are repeated. And the vast majority of times, no change in meaning, never does it address a change in biblical doctrine. And so I just say that to say, in all my discussion today, you should have total 100% confidence that what you have in your hand is a very reliable translation of the Word of God. And trust your English translations. Um, because whenever there's a textual variant of a word or two, the vast majority of the times, it's not a question about whether we have the Word of God or not. It's like, what, what exactly is, is the word that Paul wrote or that Mark wrote? And normally it is just a word or two of, of all the different variants, always, normally just a little bit. However, this morning we come to the largest textual variant of any of the, of the texts of the Bible. We have 12 verses here, which is a, a textual variant. Now, what we're delving into here this morning a little bit is the study of documents called textual criticism. In order to do it well, you need to know the original languages. You need to know the languages of the fathers, because sometimes 
a language of the Father, say Tertullian or Augustine or um, Origen or something, writes and quotes from the Bible. And when they quote from the Bible, they show they know that part of the Bible. And in fact, how they quote from it shows what version they're quoting from, what what scribal portion. So you need to know Latin. You need to know Syriac. You need to know history of pertinent texts, like where they're found and kind of text types and things like that. You need to understand the message of each biblical writer to try to understand what they would have written or why things might be a little bit different. You need to have a good understanding of church history. What were the issues of those times? Were there something going on theologically? You need to know who the church fathers are. You need to know an immense amount in order to do textual criticism well. In fact, in my seminary studies, uh, this was the very last class that we took. It was most difficult. You need to have a grasp of the Bible. You need to have a grasp of the languages and all these things. And I am not a textual critic scholar. All right, I, I'm not that. Um, but uh, I, I did did read and study some of these things. It's very interesting. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to simplify it all down as much as I can. Um, I read pages and pages this week about this, kind of reminding myself of this. But fundamentally, here's here's what's at stake. It's how much are you going to weigh older manuscripts versus number of manuscripts. So, for instance, it's okay, we don't need that slide up there. Um, If a manuscript was written in 200 A.D. or 250 A.D., how much will you weigh that maybe few manuscripts as opposed to manuscripts that are written about 700 A.D., but there are lots of them. And if they disagree, what, are you going to have the one that has a lot of texts or the one, the one um, that is just old? And predominantly what you're going to do is you're going to look to the one that's the closest. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the best. Um, you give weight if the whole of church history has uh, a bunch of other manuscripts along those same lines. The note in the King James Bible, I want to read that because it's helpful, it's bigger. Is written this. Verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in the NU, the Nestle Elan Greek New Testament, and the UBS, United Bible Society's fourth edition. So these are our standard texts that are used. So it is bracketed in these and is not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. Do you understand what it says? It says, they're in these two manuscripts, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, which are really old manuscripts. They're really good manuscripts. Much of our Bible is based upon these two, and I'll show you a picture of one of them in a little bit. But, almost all of the old other documents, all the other manuscripts, have it. So, here, do you take these two, doc, uh, these two uh, manuscripts, are really old, really close, or do you take the many, 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 which are a little bit further away, but almost in, in every single one of them? And that's, that's the battle and that's the tension of what, what's here. Codex Sinaiticus, found in the 1800s in the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai, hence its name, Codex Sinaiticus. Codex means like a book. Sinaiticus, where it was found. That's written in all capital letters, four columns. In fact, uh, I've got a picture of it. If you put it up here, the next one. Yeah, there it is. Codex Sinaiticus. About 15 inches by 13 inches, and you can see it's a couple inches thick. Um, this picture was taken um, in the British Library, which is associated with the British Museum, by yours truly. 
when uh, Vaughn and I went to Israel about a decade or so ago, um, we stopped for about five days in London first, and then on our way over, and I didn't know this was there, but as we went through the London Museum one day, then um, we happened upon this, and this is the Codex Sinaiticus is here right next to it, it was the Codex Alexandrinus, and these two are like the best documents that we have, um, some of them, two or three, complete Bibles. And um, I, I, we just kind of struck, and, and I'd read about Codex Sinaiticus, I never knew where it was, and all of a sudden I was standing right there, and I, I tell you, I was just in awe, uh, my breath was taken away as I was beholding the best complete book of the Bible that we have, oldest, and uh, I almost bowed down and worshipped it, really, um, just because it's so, it, it, you know, God in the New Testament has so transformed my life and transformed our lives that, that there's a, a reference that we have for the Word of God. As Psalm 119, Darren just, just speaks about our reverence for the Word of God. And, and, and I just, I was really struck by seeing this. There were signs that says, don't take pictures. Okay? I took a picture. I didn't use a flash, okay? So it didn't, that, that was, I think, I think that was okay. They just didn't want flashes going across. I didn't take a flash. This quiet. It's kind of a little dark. It was dark in the room. Um, special lights there so that things don't uh, go. But it, it really taught me a little bit about why I think God in His providence has kept the original manuscripts from us. Had we had the original manuscripts which Paul wrote, we may well be inclined to worship them, I think. I, I know I would be just even looking at this. Anyway, Codex Sinaiticus dates back to the 4th century, 300 A.D. Uh, I'd love to tell you the story about how Constantine found von Tischendorf found it. It's, it's a great story, but we're deviating enough today. But we would deviate a lot more if I would tell you about that. So we will we will pass over that. All right, Codex Sinaiticus and then Codex Vaticanus. Um, Codex Vaticanus dates in the mid fourth century as well, maybe just a little bit later than Codex Sinaiticus. It resides in the Vatican Library in Rome contains both the Old and New Testaments as well as um, parts of the um, Old Testament as well, good portion of the Apocrypha. It's not complete, it's missing some books, but it is fairly complete overall. It's much more than we have in most manuscripts. Most manuscripts you only have just like a, um, a page or a little sliver or something like that, maybe a scroll, maybe a, a couple books, but rare is it that you have something so old and something so complete. Now these two codexes... Um, are the most complete documents of the Bible we have, and they end Mark at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. That's um, where they stop. Now, on the other hand, you've got most of the other Greek manuscripts that have the ending. As the New King James note says, nearly all the other manuscripts contain them. My guess is hundreds of texts have that. I, I, don't, I don't know. I tried to look for how many others have it exactly. The text, we, I'm not sure how many, but many, many, many. But many of these texts date to the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. And many of these texts may be just copies of copies of copies or copies of these kind of um, uh, texts that are like that. So it may have been that error propagated itself. It may have been the longer ending is like that. Um, something was included later, soon after the original was there, and then just whatever, copied and copied and copied. And so, so for instance, just, just imagine you're a scribe and, uh, you know, you're copying these documents and you've got one version of Mark which doesn't have the ending and one version of Mark which has the ending. Which one are you going to include in yours? 
You get what I'm saying? Like if, if you got one document that stops at verse 8 and another document that has verses 9 through 20 and you're writing out the whole Gospel of Mark, what are you going to do when you reach the ending of Mark? I, I'm going to include it. <laughs> I'm not going to leave it out. So once it's there, naturally a, a scribe would, would take that and uh, would continue on. I wouldn't stop it at verse 8. So at this point, I think the best thing to do is read verses 1 through 8 and then stop. Okay? When the Sabbath was over, and we looked at this last week, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might come to anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, (coughs) wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. <clears throat> and he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now I ask you, is this how Mark ended his gospel? They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You end on a note of fear. You end without any mentions of the appearances of Jesus. Because if you look, verses 1 through 8, there's nothing of appearances. There's just an empty tomb. Last week as I was preaching this text, I, I really tried, I know this verse summer was coming, I really tried to stop at verse 8 to not spill over because I just wanted to, you know, kind of just, just, just say, you know, this might be there, it might not be there, I'm just not going to touch it. But I found myself as I was preaching it, an empty tomb isn't good enough, <laughs> right? An empty tomb... Maybe Jesus' body was stolen away. We need the appearance. We need Jesus alive. And so I snuck down into um, several different verses. Uh, verse 9 and verse 12 and verse 14. I just had to get there to the appearances of Jesus. <clears throat> Could Mark have ended without mentioning appearances of Jesus like the other Gospel writers do? Maybe. But... Also, something interesting here. It says they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. A phobonta gar is what it is. Um, they ends with the word for, or ends with the word therefore. Sometimes in Greek, you can mess up the words, but kind of basically, he says, uh, and afraid they were. For uh, it's, it's hard to hard to really translate, but it kind of ends on this gar. There's no other piece of ancient literature that ends with a gar, which means for. For they were afraid. Because Agar kind of is going to show something else happening after that. <clears throat> you just don't, you don't end with that. Rare is the sentence that ends with that word. Much less a paragraph, much less a whole book of the Bible. Furthermore, you think about Mark. Mark's writing good news, right? The very first verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or you might translate that, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is good news. It's all about the wonders of Jesus, how He lived and how He died and how He rose from the dead. His life was a life of love. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And His death was a death for our sins. The Son of Man came to give His life a ransom for many. And the resurrection proves it all. And it's it's all true. Every word that Jesus spoke with the resurrection from the dead, everything He said was, was right. And can it possibly be that Mark ended his account on this note of women fearing without any appearances of Jesus? The punchline is like gone. It's like the... The comic who tells a joke but doesn't tell the punchline in some regards. It just, it, it just lacks. Well, many people think that Mark stopped at verse 8. John MacArthur. The last word that Mark wrote was the word afraid, fear. That's kind of key, MacArthur says. They were afraid, not in the sense they were afraid for their lives or were afraid of being harmed or that they were in danger. This word, phobeo, from which we get phobia, means that it was an irrational experience. They literally were experienced bewilderment, amazement, astonishment, wonder. There's no human explanation. The thing, or the Gospel of Mark, ends in wonder. That's what MacArthur says. And, and many, many say the same thing. Many uh, commentators I read, in fact, probably the majority of what I read say that. And it may be the case, but I'm just saying it seems awfully abrupt to me. And, um, and it explains why the longer ending exists. Someone felt the need to finish the story. Mark may have finished the story, or maybe somebody else, seeing that Mark ended where he did, finish the story for him. Could have been the case. Somebody knew at any rate that it doesn't end well at verse 8. The existence of verses 9 through 20 is testimony that 8 is a bad place to finish the gospel. In fact, more than one person felt this need. If you look down at the end of verse 20, um, I don't know if all your texts have this, but the New American Standards in your pew, if you want to look at it, it's there. If you don't have one on your lap, maybe the ESV has it, I'm not sure. But it says at the end, there's a, an italics. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And there's a note on that little italics paragraph there that says, and this is a longer note in the New American Standard, a few late manuscripts and versions contain this paragraph, usually after verse 8, but some have it at the end of the chapter. This little fragment here, this italics word, has a name. Do you guys know what that name is? The what? No, it's not footnote. We're looking at the longer ending of Mark. What's the name for this little appendage on the end of 20? The shorter ending of Mark, that's what they call it. It's the shorter ending of Mark. So you, you think about it, there are two different testimonies of ending this gospel. One, verses 9 through 20, and another one just uh, right there at the end. Somehow it didn't seem quite right. Someone wrote a shorter ending, someone wrote a longer ending. It may have been Mark, it may not have been Mark. And there's reason, though, to believe that Mark didn't write it. Because, look at the transition between verse 8 and 9. If you look at verse 8, you've got a... Subject. Who's the subject of verse 8? 
They went out and fled from the tomb. Who's the subject? Who were they? They were said nothing. They were afraid. Who's they? Who? The women, right? Plural women. They, they. We're verse nine. Look how it starts. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, who's the subject of verse nine? He. Who's he referring to? Jesus. But. You, you got to go back some way. A, a pronoun normally, you know, is, is a is a is a quick reference. And uh, if you're writing the flow of things, you you'd put Jesus in here. You wouldn't just to put he. And so it kind of shows that there's a change in subject that's really abrupt. You got to go back to verse six or verse seven even to to catch that pronoun. When you're talking about women right before, and then you talk about he, it's better if you refer to Jesus. Shows there's some incontinuity in there. Also, look at how Mary Magdalene is mentioned. He first, verse 9, appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. Now, Mary Magdalene has already been mentioned in the context here. Chapter 15, verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. And in chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, solemnly brought spice that might come to anoint him. Mary has already been mentioned twice. So the question comes up, why mention now that this Mary is the one from whom seven demons had been cast out? It seems most appropriate to mention that when she comes in rather than later. But it could be that a writer was was just writing, kind of referring to that, maybe disjointed a little bit. Furthermore, some have mentioned stylistic differences in the Greek. How Mark writes, how the ending reads, pointing especially differing vocabulary in the ending. Um, I'm not sure how much weight that holds. I just bring in that's the third major argument for this stylistically seems a little bit different. But it is dealing with a different topic than the rest of Mark. So you'd expect some different vocabulary. But I just throw that out there. Let me quote Donald Guthrie, a, a great New Testament scholar. He said this. He said, the most satisfactory explanation of all the textual evidence is that the original ended at 16.8 and that the endings were different editorial attempts to deal with verse 8. That's what I just said. 16.8, if 16.8 is not likely to have been Mark's intentional ending, could it possibly have been accidental? It's possible to conjecture the scroll was damaged, but it just so happened to the original or else very early copy. But there's no means of ascertaining the correctness or otherwise of this conjecture. In other words, he's saying that Mark continued on, but early on it was lost. Could have been. Mark may have finished, but, you know, an early thing got caught in the fire or ripped up or, you know, some kid got a hold of it or some dog or we don't know. But could have been that way and Mark didn't really end there. But he said, we have no idea. That's total conjecture. There's no way to know whether that's true or not. But just trying to say maybe there was a different ending. Um, it has further been suggested something happened to Mark at this point. So he never completed the task. A suggestion which is not impossible, but which in the nature of the case cannot be confirmed. In other words, right, Mark is writing it, and, and as soon as he gets to verse 8, he's continuing to go, and he comes back, and he passes away of a heart attack before he could go and finish the work. That's what they're saying. There's no way it can be confirmed. But I'm just saying that, that people are thinking through these things, because at the end of verse 8, it's difficult. If we do not accept that Mark intended the end of 16, verse 8, it would seem the only course open to us is to admit that we do not know the ending they had in mind. And he says this, no doubt the debate will go on with little hope of a conclusive result. It goes on and on and on. You feel probably I've been going on and on and on and on. But I hope you find it interesting today. It'll help you with your little marginal readings. Like, for instance, there are other marginal readings that I've kind of just passed on by. But look at chapter 15, verse 28. There's a little 
and the scripture was fulfilled, which said he was numbered with the transgressors. The note there says early manuscripts do not contain this verse. It could be that Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus probably don't, but other passages, other manuscripts do, or there's a, another. Now, this is, by the way, how most textual problems are, like in chapter 15, verse 28, that that's totally true. The scripture was fulfilled, which says these things. Probably it's in another gospel says the exact same thing. There's nothing inherently wrong about it. It's just a matter of, did Mark actually write that or was it copied from something else and kind of a mistake that was brought in? We don't know. So the problem isn't that we don't have the Bible. The problem is that we have too much. We don't know exactly what might be there, but quoting from Isaiah uh, 53, that's not a problem. Or we, we ran across some and I just ignored these, but now I'm kind of catching up to help you with this. In chapter 9, Look there, verse 44 and 46. This quote, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched, a quote from Isaiah 66, is repeated in 44 and in 46 and in 48. The same thing is there. And so the issue is, did Mark write it in all three of those cases? Or was it just uh, added in and maybe make a mistake? Someone lost their place and put it in an early manuscript. We, we don't know, but again, in verse 44, the numeric standard has a note, verse 44 and verse 46, which are identical to verse 48, are not found in the early manuscripts. So that kind of gives you an idea of what, what's going on. Mostly, I mean, even there, everything there is exactly true. Just a matter whether it's in there, whether it's repeated. That's how most of the things are. But Mark 16 is huge. That's why I'm spending time on it. Okay, so I share this to put things in perspective. The vast majority of what you have in your hand is without controversy. Now, of course, there are liberals who seek to cast doubt on everything. But among believing scholars, no controversy. What you hold in your lap is an accurate translation of what Matthew, Luke, John, Paul wrote. And in fact, for 16 chapters of Mark, no debate. Totally right. Totally, Everyone's agreed that Mark wrote this. The controversy just comes in the last 12 verses of our text. We don't know if Mark wrote it. We don't know if someone else wrote it. But I do think they're worthy of being preached if today, even if they get just half a sermon, how appropriate that is that they, who knows if they're in there or not. But um, well, let, let, me, let me just maybe open your eyes to something Bruce Metzger said, another great test, New Testament scholar. He believes Mark did not write these verses, but listen to what he said. However, since they were surely attached to the gospel when the church recognized the gospels as canonical, the Council of Carthage in 395 AD is when that took place, and when the church finally said, okay, now what is our New Testament? What is exactly in the Bible? There's some debate about what's going to be in, what's going to be not. Basically, it came up grassroots movement, whatever was used. In 397, the longer ending of Mark was around. It's not that it wasn't there at all. It was around and in some sense you could affirm affirmed as canonical. He points out, this is Metzger does, that the New Testament contains not four but five evangelistic accounts of the events subsequent to the resurrection of Christ. You guess what he's saying? He's saying, I don't think Mark wrote it and therefore if you don't believe Mark wrote it, but if it is canonical, he's saying... We have five testimonies. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and whoever wrote the extended ending. i just throw that out, out there for you to, to think about it. Bottom line, John MacArthur says it well. He says, in your, 
in your MacArthur Study Bible, if you have it in your lap. He says, the longer ending of Mark should always be compared with the rest of Scripture and no doctrine should be formulated based solely on them. That's a huge statement, I think. There's, I, I just want to put doubt in your mind a little bit, but to say that I'm going to go through them because they were declared canonical. So I, I think that there's authenticity of them. If not, they're historic, they're accurate. In fact, the vast majority of everything in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, is included in other Gospels. So the data is all there, except just a little bit. And that little bit, which isn't in the other Gospels, I'll tell you to ignore, all right? Later, we'll get to that. All right, um, verses 9 through 20. Let's, let's work through these. And boy, we're just going to go fast. I've got a ton of notes, and we'll just we'll do. Okay, verses 9 through 14, just to put a hook on my thoughts, I said the appearances. Again, when Jesus rose from the dead, an empty tomb wasn't enough. Jesus actually appeared to people. He spoke with people. He ate with them. They touched him. That was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, when Paul was writing this, most of these guys, 500 people, are still alive. You can go talk to them. They saw 500 people at one time Jesus appeared. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. In other words, the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection wasn't just hearsay that led people to believe he's re- resurrected. It's not just an empty tomb. Oh, someone says he's risen. Oh, really? Is he risen? Yeah, the tomb is empty. Oh, great. He's risen. No, it wasn't like that. It was, I saw Jesus alive. He is risen, yes. And so it's a eyewitness testimony says someone says, I saw him. It's true. And this is the great reality of Easter that I tried to push upon you last week. What changed the apostles was the appearance of Jesus. Not implications of an empty tomb, but the actual appearance. And that's what we say. We see Jesus appearing to three sets of people. First to Mary Magdalene, and then to two disciples, and then to the eleven disciples. Mary Magdalene, verse 9. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out the seven demons. Now, John elaborates on this story. It's a very touching scene. I just want to read John's testimony just right here into verse 9, because that's exactly what it was. But Mary, this is John 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus and Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to, my, to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. 
you see a tender scene between Jesus and Mary that that Mary's desperately looking. We'll, we'll even go and we'll lift his heavy body. And as I talked last week about how she's probably older, a little more frail, perhaps how she could have carried that away for sure, she said. But instead, when she found him alive, she embraced him. So happy. And she'd have clung on to him for a long time, just to, her love for Jesus, just wanted to be there. And, and notice that Jesus wasn't a phantom or ghost or spirit. He had real flesh and blood. She said, go report to the disciples, which is exactly what she did. Verse 10, now back in Mark 16. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And this is going to be a theme we pick up about lacking faith. These disciples first heard it. They didn't believe it. Doubts filled their hearts. It really took a personal encounter to convince them. But even that wasn't always enough. Look at how he appeared then to the two disciples, personally. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way in the country. This, of course, is referring to the story told in Luke 24, the story of the road to Emmaus. I think the sense here, there appeared to them in a different form, merely means that they didn't recognize him as being who he was. I just want to read... One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Luke 24. Because Luke 24 is right here in, in verse 12. And I'm just trying to show you that everything here in Mark 16 is like another place of Scripture. And behold, Luke 24, verse 13. Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But because he was in a different form, right? Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another while you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, right, playing dumb, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and were in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some of the women among us amazed us. that When they were at the tomb early in the morning, they did not find his body. They came, saying that he had also seen a vision of angels and that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. And, and then Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish man and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He's walking along the way and he says, you guys missed it. You, you, not only just what I told you about, I'm going to rise again, right? We saw last week five times the Gospel of Mark, how he said to them he's going to rise again. But certainly more times than that, he probably told them which weren't even recorded for us. And didn't you believe what Moses said and all the scriptures and he spoke about them? So what would he have said? He said, think about Genesis 3.15, about the prophecy given that uh, enmity would be between the, the seed of the woman and the the seed of the serpent and, and how the, the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent on the head, but the seed of the serpent would only crush the seed of the woman on the heel in a prophecy of Christ that Satan would only give him a partial wound, 
a death wound, but Jesus would conquer and win over everything. He would crush Satan on his head. Signifies the sufferings of the Messiah. Yes, there would be victory, like Psalm 2 says, that Jesus will come and rule and reign. But even there, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers against the Lord, against his anointing, saying, let us tear their fetters away and their cords from us. Even the prophecy of a risen Christ prophesied of a struggle that would take place between the Messiah and the religious leaders. Or Jesus maybe even said, what about Isaiah 53? And all these prophecies that came true of Jesus. He was despised and forsaken, oppressed and afflicted, like a lamb going to slaughter, cut off out of the land of the living. His grave was assigned with a rich man in his death. And, and all those things, Jesus could have explained how all those things of Isaiah 53 happened. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die? Isn't this what Jesus told you? Isn't this what Moses speaks? Or even Psalm 118 So they may well have sung after that last Passover meal that they had. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In fact, even when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he quoted that for the rulers. They said, what authority are you doing these things? He said, do you not know the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Then he brought up that or brought up Psalm 22, which had been known as the crucifixion psalm. Because it contains so much in it about the crucifixion. How they, they wagged their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver him. Or Psalm 22, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All these things happen to the cross. And just could have been read through Psalm 22 and said, Wasn't this fulfilled in Jesus? Didn't he have to die? But then Psalm 16 could have been referred to in terms of what, what would have happened after that because the promise there of Psalm 16 verse 10 is that he will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. Because said, remember David, David was in his tomb and he decayed. The promise is for the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to decay. How is he not going to decay? He's got to rise from the dead and get out of the ground so he doesn't decay. Psalm 16 prophesies the resurrection. He would sit upon David's throne forever and all the nations would be blessed in him. Certainly that's true, but certainly he had to first die first. And then the suffering would come. And Jesus was certainly telling those on the road to Emmaus what he saw. And so as he's going on, then as you remember, right, they approached this village. Jesus pretended he was going to pass on. They said, no, come and eat with us. And when he ate with them, he broke the bread with them. And their eyes were open and said, this is Jesus. That's who that was. And back in Mark 13, we see that these, these two who saw Jesus in this other form walking along the way, went away and reported to the others. But even though they reported, they still were unbelieving. They didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I just say this, don't ever be deluded into thinking about how primitive the people were in the Bible times, that they were so susceptible. Of course, they might think that people raised from the dead. But we sophisticated people, they, we know that's not the case. No, I would say they are every bit more like us, just like us. In fact, I was just talking to someone this week about, I pressed you last week to say that if you're having trouble believing the resurrection, it's a good thing because you're trying to think of the realities of what it means that bodily fluids come back in and how, how, that, how that starts. I think that, um, whatever, workers at mortuaries, not mortuaries, yeah, Funeral homes, 
who deal with dead bodies all the time, I bet they're the ones who have struggled with the resurrection the most because they deal with the dead bodies all the time. They bring them in and get them ready for the funeral. They bring them in. And they, and they have seen time after time and time after again dead bodies that we don't see. And they've never seen one arise. They, they don't see it. They know what, what they're doing. They know how dead they are. And I think those people are the ones who probably have a harder time believing. And in fact, back then... They dealt in touch with dead bodies far more than we do in America. We're in a hospital, someone passes away, and then you leave. And then uh, the maintenance workers come, they take the body down in the morgue, and the mortuary comes, they take the body away, and in the dark basement, they do whatever they do, and then they, they bring it up, and then we see the body, but we don't, we don't deal with it. Back then, someone died. What, what did Joseph of Arimathea do? He took him off the cross. He'd taken the hands off of the nails and his feet out of the nails and taken him and wrapping him and carrying him. They had a lot more physical touch with dead people than we do today. I think they probably have a harder time believing the resurrection than we do because we don't deal with that as much. But, but all this to say, don't ever think that, oh, they were simple folk back then, they would have believed the resurrection of the dead. It may have been harder for them than for us. I'm just, just saying that it's, it's miraculous. It's easy to see even here. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Belief in the resurrection is not an easy thing. And then in verse 14, right, we see Jesus appear to the women. We see Jesus appear to the two disciples. And then in verse 14, to the eleven disciples. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen them after he had risen. According to our text today, Jesus reproached the disciples for their hardness of heart, their unbelief. Matthew's account says much the same thing, that when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but there were still some doubtful people in seeing him. The question to us is, do you believe? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? If you don't believe, Jesus might reproach you, just as he reproached the disciples. Now, you might be thinking, well, if the disciples had a difficult time believing it, isn't it okay for us? I mean, after all, I mean, they, they saw Jesus. They heard eyewitness testimonies and they, they didn't believe. Isn't it okay for us? I mean, they were talking to people who saw Jesus and all we get is writings. What does God expect of us? Beyond what the disciples experienced? I say, yes, God expects probably more of us. Look what verse 14 says of why he reproached them. He reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of hearts because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. They did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. They had eyewitness testimonies, people they knew and they trusted. They didn't believe them. But what do we have? We have their testimonies that were written down. So we didn't know these people, but... Still, what he said is that they didn't believe them. Similar with us. If we don't believe in the resurrection, because we don't believe Matthew. If we don't believe in the resurrection, because we don't believe Luke. Or we don't believe Paul. Or we don't believe John. Right? We're believing. And we're getting multiple testimonies. And, by the way, you think about um, how we have the advantage of hindsight. What they say, hindsight vision is 2020. We have the vision of hindsight. We have the, the um, 
the benefit of time. We have the benefit of thinking through. The, and they're right in the moment, just right there. Within a matter of days, they're called to believe this. Whereas for us, we have some, some time and study and think about the Old Testament and, and everything we have, the big picture of the life of Jesus and, and even the latter testimonies of Paul that they didn't even have. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if we don't believe the resurrection, there's no excuse. God has made it plain to us. Wow. That's my half my sermon. I preached half my sermon and um, I've got a lot, a lot more to go. Yeah, um, you know what? I'm just going to stop right there because I want to preach a message um, talking about going a little bit. Um, I, I, it's going to be called, Do You Love Your Neighbor? I think is my message next week. And, and I'll just, I'll start here in John, or Mark 16, verse 15. And I'll pick it up with some other ideas, just challenging us to follow the, the Great Commission. But let me just comment briefly on 17 and 18, because I don't want to talk about these verses next week. All right, um, 15 and 16 is the Great Commission. And by the way, my outline, we've got the text, the appearances. Here's the commission. Commission comment, verse 15 and 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Boy, that, if, that, if that doesn't press us to believe, I'm not sure what would press us to believe. He has been believed and been baptized. The early church, remember, that baptism quickly followed belief. But he was unbelieved will be condemned. And we are to take this message and go to the world. More on that next week. But look at verse 17. He says, These signs will accompany those who believed in my name. They will cast out five signs. They'll cast out demons, they'll speak with new tongues, they'll pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And five, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, of these things, we know that three of them actually took place. We know that they cast out demons. Um, in fact, we know that the disciples cast out demons. You can read Mark 3, Mark 6, talking about how they cast out demons. We know the early church was about casting out demons. We know enough about the Gospels, we know enough about Acts to know that took place. We know the early church spoke with new tongues, right? The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, they spoke languages they didn't know to people who knew those languages. They said, how does this Galilean speak that language? That's what tongues are, I believe. They're known languages spoken to other people, if you didn't even know that. The same thing happened in Acts chapter 10. These Gentiles probably speak in Hebrew, and these Jewish people come, hey, they're speaking Hebrew, they're speaking these new tongues they don't even know. And so they're talking about that. Same thing happened in Acts 19. Paul speaks about it in the church. So it was in the church, even 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We know they're casting out demons. We know they're speaking in tongues. We know also that they laid hands on the sick and that they recovered. In Acts 28 verse 8, we see that Paul laid hands on someone he healed. The big question is number four and five, picking up serpents and if they drink deadly poison, it will not harm them. The closest thing we have was in Acts 28, the, the ship was shipwrecked that Paul was in, and they're building a fire to keep warm, and there was a snake there, and the fire stirred out, and the snake came and bit Paul, and they said, oh, Paul's been, he's going to die because he's bitten by this venomous snake, and he didn't die, and uh, maybe in reference to this, maybe that's the, the serpent's poison in them, whatever, picking up serpents, I forget whether Paul picked it up and threw it away at that time, or whatever, was hanging from his arm, and he, he got it off his arm, but... That's the closest thing we know. Maybe there was more. We just don't know. There are some people, though, sadly, who won't stay away from these verses. I'm recommending you just, just stay away. We don't know if it's authentic. We don't know what's happening. It's maybe historical. But there are churches who do these things. They handle snakes in their church services. 
Um, and just know that those who do so place their doctrine and their practice on a tenuous text. And let's just not place a doctrine or practice on a tenuous text. Because I'm scared of snakes. And um, I recently heard of a preacher who died from a snake bite. And in fact, we were reading through this recently at our family. And I'd seen this come on CNN or something.com. And uh, I was I was doing this sometimes often happens in our family worship where we read, I read a paragraph and Yvonne reads a paragraph and Hannah tries to get the smallest paragraph to read and then Isar reads a paragraph, we kind of go around and there are some times where I, I, just, I just close my eyelids just a little bit, all right? And um, I'm, I'm out because I'm so tired and we're kind of reading around and I remember we read and I was getting kind of sleepy but I pulled up on one of my electronic devices uh, a CNN story about uh, these guys who handling snakes and died. And uh, the story was that this guy died, and and his grandfather died by a snake bite too. And uh, his son, you know, what his son is his son is a snake handler preacher. You know, what he's going to die of he's going to die of a snake bite at some point. I'm guessing the guy's young, whatever, 20 years old or something like that. And and they do this, and at some point they might consider the fact that Mark 16:18 isn't working for them. Is <laughs> what they might might figure out it at some point. Um, but the commission, that's, that's what's going to happen as these people go out and change the world. But the commission is really in verse 15 and 16. Okay, finally, just the ascension, verse 19 and 20. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. You can read about that, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So what Jesus did, the disciples were there. He's just lifted up and they're looking at him in the clouds. All of a sudden, an angel comes and says, why are you looking up there? Jesus will return just as he left. And they're like, okay, go on your way. And they went on their way. And as verse 20 says, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And verse 20 is really Acts 2 through Acts 28. And uh, I love, there's a church planting movement today called Acts 29. You heard of that? Many of you, some of you. Acts 29, it's a church planning network. And the idea, I remember Krista being exposed to that. She said, Acts 29? What's that about? Acts 29 is like the story for today. And uh, I just want to encourage you as we get to the end of Mark, and particularly we'll get to it next week. Are you involved, engaged in Acts 29 ministry? Ministry that goes beyond the book of Acts, the church continuing to infiltrate as we preach the gospel to all creation. It's where we should be. And come back next week and I'll challenge you how to do that. I want to give you some real practical steps for that. So let's pray. Father, I, I just I thank you. This is a sermon I've been dreading, you know, for a, a long time. Just trying to figure out how to do this and engage people with this text. I pray you teach us a bit about your Bible, how it's put together. I pray that it's my prayer has been all week that we might not lose confidence in our English Bibles. God, they are true, they are, are solid, they are trustworthy. would pray you'd help us to know how to approach tenuous texts. Help us to know that the debate will go on and on and on. May we believe the things which are reliable and sure and true. May we stand rock solid on the fact of what the Bible teaches, that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, and that through faith in Him our, our sins can be forgiven. We can stand right before you. Oh, help us, O oh Lord, to, to trust in you. Help, help us even next week, I think, about these verses I skipped. and To think about the Great Commission 
and how we can be involved in that at Rock Valley Bible Church about spreading the news of the gospel that people need to hear so they might be saved and enter into everlasting joy. So help me as I formulate that message this week and help us as we think about that. God, to engage as a church that would be about going out and uh, speaking with people the wonderful news. We've got great news in here. We've enjoyed your grace today. But may we extend your glory this coming week. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.